Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, there can be always a moment that comes along where you say, it's the essay of the summer. Boy, it's awful early to say it's the essay of the summer. But David Folkert's Landau and his team at Deutsche Bank, with the leadership of Peter Hooper, their global head of economic research, have generated 18 thought-provoking, must-read pages for Global Wall Street. We're honored that Dr. Hooper could join us this morning. Peter, you say it is the end of neoliberalism. We have a risk of going back to Reagan Volcker. How close are we to going back to a time of shockingly high inflation? Um, uh, we, we've obviously seen a huge shift in both monetary and, and fiscal policy uh, that's given us a lot more stimulus to the economy than ever anyone would have imagined a couple of years ago. Uh, the, the chances of getting back to the, the high inflation 60s and 70s have, have taken a, a, a leap forward. Uh, it's still not the most likely outcome, but certainly the risks have risen, have risen tremendously thanks to uh, uh, 25% of GDP in, in fiscal stimulus in the last year and a half. Uh, who would have imagined uh, seeing something like that? Peter, this increasingly becomes a game of faith because people are dismissing current data as simply transitory. How do you convince clients who say, look, it has been this way for 20, 30 years where we've seen inflation come down progressively uh, in a steady fashion uh, if you look over time. What do you say to them to convince them that this time is different? Uh, and Lisa, you, you, you're right. The market is remar re remarkably uh, calm about uh, in, in the face of this storm coming. Um, I, I think you, you have to live through a, a, a surge in inflation that's going to be reversed for a while. Uh, and then you have to look ahead to the possibility of an economy that's going to be operating at well above potential. Uh, I mean, yes, we've been expecting, uh, we had a big surprise in, in April. Uh, people have uh, had revised their expectations, and now the, the numbers we're likely to get uh, for May, not looking anywhere near as scary. And there are reasons to expect things to, uh, to slow down near term. But if, if we get this uh, increase in household saving uh, in excess of 10% of GDP that's been salted away here, uh, not spent so far, if that begins to come on stream as uh, households are normalizing their spending, as pent-up demand is being released, uh, we're, we're going to see this economy push well into overheated state. And uh, the problem is that the Fed has told us they're going to be uh, uh, late in removing the punch bowl, if you will. Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, they want to see the economy overheat before they start raising rates. There's going to be a recognition lag, and there's going to be a long response lag of the economy to Fed tightening. So the chances of things getting out of hand down the road certainly have increased. Hold on a second, Peter. Are you saying out of hand? And this is a distinction from other people who say that, yes, we may see above trend inflation, but we're not going to go back to the 1970s. Are you saying that we could go back to 1970s style inflation? There, there's certainly a risk there. Um, 
you know, our, our, our numbers say that uh, there is a, a chance, a, a, in fact, a, an uncomfortably high chance that you see uh, the, out, the output gap for the U.S., the amount by which GDP exceeds potential, moving up above 2 3%. The, the high we've seen for the last uh, three, four decades has been around 2%, and inflation hasn't gotten out of control. Uh, in the 60s, it, got, it went up to 55 6%. We could be there if as much as a third of this uh, savings that's been accumulated, unusually large savings been accumulated over the last year and a half, is spent out over the next uh, year or two. Uh, Peter, that would be a, a, a massive push to GDP. Peter, uh, the Bank of England chief economist Andy Haldane writing in the um, Statesman yesterday saying this is the most dangerous moment for monetary policy since inflation targeting began in 1992. He's saying, you know, you, you can't look anywhere and find something whose price isn't rising. Is this overheating uh, uh, is this overheating intention shared in the UK and the ECB as much as it is in, in, in the US? Well, I think, I mean, so, so Europe's in a different situation. Uh, certainly the, the labor market going in was not as tight as in the US. Uh, and uh, we have not seen the kind of shift in fiscal and monetary policy regime that the US has had. The ECB has not said they're gonna be uh, reactive as opposed to preemptive. If inflation, if we saw inflation picture in Europe the way we are anticipating in the U.S., I think the ECB would respond quite differently. Uh, and uh, while well, we have had the uh, uh, NGDP, the 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 the, uh, the uh, uh, recovery recovery program, et cetera, spending in 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 Europe coming up, that's not anywhere near as large as what the U.S. Is, uh, has on tap. So. Yes, I think uh, there is concern about uh, near-term supply uh, disruptions, and, and we are seeing some impressive increases in inflation in Germany. Um, but uh, uh, the, 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 the sense that the risk is anywhere near as large in Europe uh, is just not there. Dr. Hooper, underpinning this, and I say this with great respect to Steve Roach, you know him from Morgan Stanley and now Yale University years ago, is the underpinning of your work at the IMF and also the work of Dooley Folkert's Landau Garber, which is always watch the flows, watch the money. Many of you folks will know Martin Wolf and his wonderful work at the FT on this as well. If we get the time bomb in your 18-page report, what does it do to the flows of capital in the world? Well, now the, t the time bomb is, is another way of, uh, uh, of describing the Fed being late to late to the party, okay, late in terms of taking the punch bill away. Because we've gotten behind the curve, we're going to need to act aggressively. That means rates go up sharply. That's very disruptive to financial markets. It's very disruptive to uh, many emerging market countries with huge amounts of debt uh, that are going to be very sensitive to a, a sharp rise in, in U.S. rates. Uh, that, I mean, that, that, uh, that, that, that's the concern down the road. It's a risk. It's not, uh, not in my way of thinking the, the most likely scenario yet, but it's certainly something we need to uh, have our, have our uh, antennae uh, tuned into. Your x-axis in this report, to be clear, folks, is not getting out to Q3 or Q4 and the rest of the game of market economics and the financial media. The Deutsche Bank view begins to frame out 2024. 
What is the efforts we can do before 2024 to ameliorate the time bomb? Well, I think, I mean, the Fed has gotten into this inflation averaging framework. Right. This was, this was exactly what they needed to do to deal with a world where they were struggling to get inflation up to 2% and get inflation expectations uh, to a more uh, desirable, sustainable level. Inflation expectations are back. Uh, I think the Fed is going to need to recognize, begin to recognize this risk, uh, certainly over the next year, uh, and begin to, begin to edge toward a, a sooner uh, tightening than is currently well, priced in. Peter, let's start at Jackson Hole. I don't know if you're going to be there with David, but we'd be thrilled to speak to you. Our Michael McKee, I know, will be reporting there. Let's go to the time bomb of Jackson Hole. Is the time bomb of Jackson Hole for the markets, for our radio and TV uh, listeners and viewers? Is it a change back to the theories and regimes pre-pandemic? Can the Fed do that, leading the rest of the central banks? I think I think the central focus of Jackson Hole will probably be. Uh, is the Fed going to give us a clear signal that they're beginning to unwind, uh, talk about unwinding their balance sheet? Uh, we're, still, we're still a ways away from the Fed recognizing seriously uh, this, this risk. And, and I mean, yeah. uh, they, they have a ways to go to get to that point. And but, Peter, uh, this is a lot of people are looking for the talking about tapering or talking about talking about tapering as being the key moment for Jackson Hole. There's also a question, though, going to 2023, as you did. Does the Fed have the tools to control the control inflation in the way that they have in the past? And that, I think, is sort of underpinning your call. Are you saying that the Fed does not have those same tools, given uh, how much money has been pumped into the system? The Fed certainly has the tools to deal with inflation. It doesn't have the tools to deal with it with a, in a, a, a soft landing sense, if you will. Uh, it's very difficult if you're going to be behind the curve to deal with a, a, an inflation problem that's building some momentum, that's getting into expectations uh, and moving beyond desired levels without being very disruptive. The Fed has never been able to deal with a, uh, a rising inflation problem, uh, bring it back without causing a recession. And if they're behind the curve when they start this process, it could be right. a major recession. Dr. Hooper, thank you so much for this first conversation on this important research. We're thrilled that Peter Hooper of Deutsche Bank could join us today. Right now, Katrina Dudley joins us with Franklin, and this is really special. She's got a real ample career on the sell side in securities research uh, and portfolio manager, particularly in Europe with Franklin uh, Mutual. Katrina, good morning to you. How much of a value is Europe right now? Look, Europe has always been a quintessential value market. You just look at the construct of the market. It's heavy in financials. It's heavy in energy. And they're two sectors that are trading at very, very cheap multiples. Um, but the good news about Europe is actually the construct of the market is changing. Um, we've now got a rising luxury sector, which is the equivalent of the technology sector over here in the United States. And that sector is actually growing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I got to stop. Come on. Are you telling me Louis Vuitton is equivalent to Apple or Amazon? 
Um, I think Louis Vuitton is actually even better than an Amazon because it's 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 brand name to be around for many Some people would agree with you. <laughs> exactly, but you can't you can't replace some of their products. You can't get some of their handbags at the moment. And if you've tried ordering you know, some of their jewelry, it's out of stock. I'm at least. Uh, Mrs. Keen, Mrs. Keen would agree, and he. Uh, Katrina, this, and this is, is a long-running story exactly. on this show. Literally, I mean, this is this is the debate. If, if you mention Hermes, I'm going to walk off the set. He Lisa, will have continue. you know nightmares from <clears throat> dinner conversations of your. Meanwhile, we're talking about the ECB policy in tandem with ECB stocks, and really the underlying question here is: Is there an exit strategy that could be done with grace? In other words, can you buy European stocks for a longer period of time with? faith that the ECB can extract themselves easily and gracefully. Well, I think it's interesting because you were talking about Grace Kelly before and high heels backwards for half the price. Um, if I take a look at the, the exit out of this, uh, the ECB is watching the Fed. Um, the, the, the European markets are actually behind the U.S. in terms of our recovery out of or actually a recovery from the COVID mm -hmm. uh, virus because the vaccine rollout was slower. Um, and so I think they're really looking at the markets. They're looking at the Fed action. And I think that the ECB will be slower to act this time. Um, just to have a look what happened back in May, where you saw kind of Italian yields blow out. And it was kind of this mini taper tantrum. And I think they're really watching to see what happens, because it's not just about what the Fed, the ECB is saying. It's the implications of that on various markets, for example, in this case in Italy. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit, a little bit about Italy and I guess the reaction uh, that at least a lot of us on this side of the Atlantic look to uh, when we try to sort of divine uh, what the ECB is going to do and how it's going to be received. Uh, how are investors in Italy right now, the investors in Italian debt right now, uh, preparing for uh, whatever it is the ECB may or may not do? If I take a look, what we're looking at in Italy is support for the new government. I think actually where, you know, I've talked about Italian politics as, as I say, as messy as a bowl of spaghetti, but I think it's actually at this time, it's probably the best outlook for Italy we've had in a long time. Yeah. And I think the EPB is aware of that. They need to be accommodated. I mean, Katrina, time for one more question. We got to get you back here. This has been fascinating. What kind of a victory lap is Mario Draghi going to take at G7? I mean, he's on top of the world right now, right? I don't think he's going to take a victory lap. I think he's a humble person, and I think that he is quietly doing what's right for his <laughs> Mario Draghi? Wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry, Katrina. Mario Draghi is a humble person? Really? Wow. I think what he's doing and, and the role he's taking in Italy is doing something that yeah. you want all good politicians to do, which is acting in the best interest of the country. And I think that's what he is doing. I mean, Katrina, um, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but we got to go. But in your research on luxury to find value for oh, Franklin Lord. Mutual <laughs> series, don't you find the Gucci store below the seven the steps, the Spanish steps, no. the Spanish stairs in Rome is the most dangerous store in Europe? I haven't been there because of the travel ban, but I am very excited about the fact that Boris Johnson is now meeting with Joe Biden and we may be able to travel back to London, and hopefully back to Spain so that we can go there in person. There, well, I expect we do a road trip and we demand a surveillance remote with you from the <laughs> Spanish stairs in Rome here. Katrina Dudley, thank you so much, Ron Franklin. Right now, widely anticipated, Jeffrey, you joins us. 
with BNY Mellon, their senior strategist. Jeffrey Yu, the zeitgeist right now, the certitude is it's been one big short squeeze. Everyone was betting on lower bond prices and higher yields, and the trade has swung with acceleration the other way. Do you buy it that it's just a short squeeze? Um, Matt, uh, and uh, perhaps um, heading into the summer months, um, people just don't want to take too much risk on in uh, either direction. Uh, but given the experience over the past few years, you know, by definition, you know, risk on uh, means um, actually having equities on, so not as risk off. Well, do you need to take that? That's okay, Jeff. Do you, <laughs> yeah. you want to get that? <laughs> Sorry. Is that Jay Powell calling know. you up? Hey, Jeff, <laughs> let me tell you what we're playing. You know what, yes. you know what yes. that is? That's Jeff for you going along on some meme stock today. That's oh, yeah, what is that, that is. what's going on, Jeff? Oh, Listen, yeah. we're looking at a bond market, and a lot of people are saying that it's an endorsement of the Fed's view that inflationary uh, impulses are going to be short-lived, and we're going to end up in the same slow inflation kind of environment that we've been in for the past several decades. Do you agree? Is that the message from bonds? Uh, well, again, the message from bonds is, and they want to know, you know, which type of inflation is that the uh, Fed actually targeting? Let's put it this way. We've actually had two straight months of soft jobs, um, uh, soft, soft wage growth now in Germany, you know, in Eurozone. BOE saying you know, wage growth, wage settlements, not that strong. The most hawkish region in the world right now, Central Europe, Poland, warning jobs of wage growth is not accelerating at the same pace as before the pandemic. So is inflation really high? Uh, but then again, should we be targeting this? Or is the market taking the bet that the short term supply constraints, they're going to be permanent? And this is going to yeah. challenge the bond market and challenge the Fed as well. Jeff, how, how many cues should we be taking right now from the commodities market? I mean, we still see uh, oil, uh, Brent crude still camped out around uh, 72 bucks. You have uh, a lot of the base metals are either are at or s sort of near their record highs that they set uh, back in April and May here. How much concern should be baked into reading those prices right now? I think the market is very concerned. But if you look at what the policymakers are doing, especially in China, what was the biggest marginal pricer for commodity prices globally? China. And China is saying commodity prices are too high, but they are blaming too much liquidity. They are blaming speculation as well. Some of it domestically driven, granted. We saw the monetary aggregates overnight. But on the other hand, they are blaming global central banks as well. So they're saying, look, Federal Reserve, ECB, you're printing too much money and we have to deal with the consequences here. So China can use price controls as much as they can, but the rest of the world less so. Hence, we should be concerned yeah. at the combination of tightening by China and globally to contain these prices. I, I, I look at where we are, Jeffrey you, and I'm going to suggest that our radio and TV listeners, their heads are spinning over all the different opinions all the theory, the econo babble that's out there as well. And to me, it comes down to the time continuum, the x-axis. Deutsche Bank looking out past 2023 with their time bomb of inflation and others looking wicked short term. That's a Boston phrase. If you're with BNY Mellon, Jeff Yu, you got to have a full understanding of the phrase wicked. What's the x-axis look like for Jeff Yu? What does your continuum look like? From now, out one year, out two years, out three years. I'm looking at the next six months, actually. I'm looking at what the ECB will signal in September. Not today, but September, talking about tapering. If you're looking at Eastern Europe, you know, they are signaling advancement already. A full rate cycle being priced in. 
um, over the next uh, 18 months or so. You're seeing some of that within Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand, like all uh, the list goes on and on. So I don't think we should be blasé and uh, just go BOJ like, oh, five-year inflation expectations are, are wherever. It's much more about the short term. And within the next three months, we need to see whether these supply issues are indeed short term. But if they are going to be persistent, then central banks probably will have to move. And that's going to introduce volatility into the market. So, Jeff, what would you be doing right now? Uh, so um, right now, again, reading the tea leaves in terms of central banks, probably we're in a holding pattern, but heading into August and September. Look at the event risk. So you want to be light on risk, but then start to factor in upside surprises for vol and for inflation. We've got Jackson Hole coming up where there's more communication. ECB September meeting is going to be crucial. German elections. Is it going to be a new era for Europe, for reflation as well? The UK uh, taper of uh, the uh, uh, furlough scheme coming off and the BOE will decide whether they want to move towards a new regime. So I think all of this could actually happen in the next three months. Uh, so for those waiting for another year or so, I think that's going to be too late. So risk light heading into summer, but you want to yeah. have some risk on in either direction heading into August and September. Any, any confidence in the trade of being short government bonds? Uh, so that is uh, still going to be highly contingent, you know, on what the Fed says. I would say for the short term, uh, volatility is going to pick up. So you want to own fixed income volatility, but price-wise, they're going to keep the range in place because that kind of tightening in financial conditions through lower prices and higher yields, that's going to be a step too far for central banks for the time being. But you want to own fixed income vol. Jeffrey, you, thank you so much with BNY Mellon. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. Joining us right now, Sebastian Galli with Nordia. Coming to us today from scenic Luxembourg, uh, Sebastian, good morning. Good morning. What is Luxembourg like? I think, you know, seriously, across this nation of America, for most of our uh, good listeners, including me, <laughs> I'd have trouble finding it on a map. As I Google but, map but, it now. But seriously, what, what does Luxembourg look like on a beautiful summer morning? It's beautiful. It's sunny. It does rain a lot also. Um, and the, there are cows around, and it's a huge financial center, which is a bit unusual. Yeah. It's a small country uh, between Belgium, France, uh, yeah. and, uh, and Germany. They, they speak a, a dialect, which is a, a mixture of all three, and they speak French and, uh, and German as well as English. So quite a few people coming from the UK here. Is there a dominant language? Is, is French the dominant language? No, it's uh, what they call Luxembourgish, uh, Luxembourgeois, uh, which is a local language, it's a, which is a dialect slash language. See, folks, See? what you can learn on surveillance. It's I'm amazing. Google mapping it right now. And, and yeah. it, boy, I've been all around it. I just haven't been to Luxembourg. <laughs> I've been all around. <laughs> Sebastian Gelli has been all around our economics, finance, and investment. Sebastian, what is the thrust of your note after you see the kind of inflation levels we speak of in America? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon because of the reaction of the equity market is relatively positive for uh, somewhat nonsense. Futures up 205. Exactly. And what, what do you have is inflation rising, one, because of bottlenecks. Number two, because people, uh, companies find it easy to pass through inflation. Why? Because inflation becomes unstable. Once inflation starts to rise, it has a certain tendency to rise even more. So people think they can pass it through. We're going to get negative uh, economic data because of this in the following month. And then wage expectations have reset higher because people are much more optimistic. Uh, they have suffered for decades of low, low wages, and suddenly there's a reset which is happening, and that feeds also into a higher mm. inflation. So the question, of course, is whether this is transitory or, or not? And the answer is, is a mixture of the two. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is transitory and uh, some of it is permanent. Wage expectations have risen. This is a new America and it's a different one. 
Record high moments ago in the Standard Poor's mm. Paul 500. Paul, you can retire. Yeah, exactly. I've had enough. All right, Sebastian, you know, we, we're hearing from the ECB today, we, and we, we have a pretty consistent message from the Federal Reserve uh, that they are going to continue to support uh, this economic environment. But there's a lot of folks, I think, starting to say, enough's enough. It's time to pull back here. The world's reopening. Uh, enough has been done here. We can pull back. What do you think about that? Well, it, it's, uh, if you imagine that you're at a race and we've just basically started accelerating, the last thing you want to do is shoot yourself in the foot. So you want to continue accelerating as much as you can, but there is a, a maximum amount of acceleration that you can reach, otherwise you get exhausted. And that's a fine balance between shooting yourself in the foot and going too fast that the Fed has to maintain. And as you can see with the reaction the yeah. in, in the U.S. Treasury saying interest rates have to go higher, we already are being prepared for the phenomenon that interest rates eventually will go higher. So the, the Fed agrees with you, but it is talking to yeah. the U.S. Treasury. Sebastian, to Segui over, that's Luxembourg-ish, the way I said that. <laughs> to Segui over to your wonderful note on China, I love what you say about clear and reliable signals of goodwill. And part of that is a stronger renminbi uh, seen in China against weaker uh, dollar. Are you actually looking for a de-escalation of the tensions of China and the United States? Yes, I, th I think the, the comment which has been made uh, by the first talk of uh, trade talks between the United States and, uh, and China has been to dismiss them and to say this doesn't matter. But it's very important because the process of de-escalation is one that lasts up to two months. It's a very long process. Why? Because you have to lead the opinion. The opinion in the United States has been led against China, China also uh, against the U.S. And to change that process is very difficult and slow. Uh, the context, the language has to change. It means uh, that the process which has started now should continue. And then if, therefore the question is not what's going to happen in the next two months, which is more positive news, but what happens afterwards? Uh, do you get a credible deal do the Chinese let their currency appreciate? Do you really de-escalate in a more fundamental basis? They remain adversaries from a strategic point of view, but they decide to some extent that engaging, uh, as the Europeans are doing with the Chinese, the Americans are willing to do uh, with, with China. And that is, of course, very beneficial for both U.S. equities and Chinese equities. All right, Sebastian, with that backdrop, where do you see the greatest opportunity as you think about your global uh, macro outlook here, given the various stages or the uneven stages of reopenings and vaccine uh, rates and that so on, where, where are you doing your most work now? Disruption. So what you can imagine is the world, not of this year, not of the next year, but of the following year, will be one of moderate growth uh, in, in developed economies, whether it's in the United States or Europe, particularly so in Europe less so in the United States, and disruptions, new technologies that change fundamentally how we operate will allow companies to become more cost-efficient, demand to be better reached, and that process has already started. These stocks tend to be expensive, and the odds are that they kind of are going to get much, much more expensive. So the, the process of creativity is going to be rewarded ever more in the, in the following decades, and this is the, the beginning of the time when you want to be focused oh on these kind of uh, positions. Within the cosmic nature of your strategy, and Sebastian, we love your research notes, but does it distill down to your long the stock market that in this great bull market, you can still own equities for an enthusiasm of total return? 
you can. So our value on the U.S. stock market is you want to be a long value in cyclicals rather than growth. So we're quite prudent on growth, particularly for next year, because we think that as the Fed tightens, it will go through the eye of the needle. What will happen mm-hmm. once it goes out through the eye of the needle is it's going to rebound at an incredibly rate. Uh, why? Because they are the companies which will generate the changes of tomorrow. Not only the companies which are here, but the companies yeah. which will appear in the next five to ten years. So it's a huge opportunity to step into growth. So growth should stay expensive irrespective of the fact that it should go through a significant correction. So for now, we'd like the JP Morgan, for example, more than Apple. Um, but it doesn't mean that Apple has a long-term strategy. If you can hold your portfolio for five or 10 years, it's just not an awesome position. Very good. Sebastian Gelli, thank you so much. With Nordia from Luxembourg. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.